0: Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Leah Todd, a legal worker at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Today, I'm joined by Beth Stevens, Distinguished Professor of Law at Rutgers Law School, as well as a former staff attorney with the Center for Constitutional Rights. And I'm also joined by Thomas Becker, Instructor at the University Network for Human Rights, As cooperating attorneys with the Center for Constitutional Rights, Beth and Thomas have litigated the Mamani case brought on behalf of indigenous Bolivians against the former president of Bolivia, Gonzalo Sánchez de Lozada, otherwise known as Goni, and the former Minister of Defense, Carlos Sánchez Berzain, for their role in coordinated killings during mass popular protests in 2003. Welcome to the podcast, Beth and Thomas. Thank you. Thank you. It's so great to speak with you again. Beth joined us on our podcast all the way back in September of 2018 to speak about this case. So I'm really looking forward to this kind of follow-up and catch up of what's gone on. So I'll start asking you, Beth, when we last spoke back in September 2018, we had just had a major development in the case following a great win at trial. The judge had actually overruled a jury verdict in favor of our client's At the time, you were hopeful that we would be vindicated on appeal. So I was hoping you could give us maybe just a short background on the case and an update on what has happened since then.
1: Sure. The case, as you said, dates back to 2003, when mass demonstrations in Bolivia, almost entirely by the indigenous population of Bolivia, the majority population, but one that at the time was almost entirely shut out of political power, And people took to the streets. They were demonstrating for for mostly economic, social and economic rights. And the government at the time responded with military force. They sent uh, convoys of soldiers through small towns. The the first killing that led to the case, they shot into houses through windows at people throughout the small village, including through the window of a small house killing an eight-year-old girl whose parents are two of the plaintiffs in our case. And over the following weeks, dozens of people, between 50 and 60 people, were killed by the military, the military who were given orders to shoot at anything that moves. And they did. They they shot and killed civilians, unarmed civilians. So we filed a lawsuit against the former president, um, Sanchez de Lozada, the former minister of defense, after they fled from Bolivia to the United States thereby escaping from prosecution in Bolivia, where the other people in their government and the military were prosecuted, and some of them were sent to jail. And as you said, after years of litigating this case, up and down different trips to the appellate court, we had a jury trial in March and April of 2018, and the jury ruled in our favor. The jury ruled that the defendants were liable, responsible for the extrajudicial killing of the relatives of our plaintiffs, our clients. Shortly after, the trial court judge threw out the jury verdict, something that the judge can do in rare cases only if the judge is convinced that no reasonable jury could have come to that conclusion. We strongly disagreed with the judge's decision. We thought we had presented more than adequate evidence testimony to the jury to support their decision and the appellate court agreed with us. So we we now have a decision from the appellate court from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal system, which says that there was sufficient evidence to support the jury's verdict. Now there are still pending issues. It was sent back to the trial court to decide whether there was sufficient evidence on a couple of issues that the judge didn't rule on the first time around. So that's where we are now. We have our verdict back on the the issue of whether these were deliberated killings by the military, but we have to now litigate before the trial court judge whether there was sufficient evidence to support other parts of the jury's verdict.
0: Thanks so much for that, Beth. We're celebrating with you this important victory that we had already achieved before, and it's so great to hear that the victory was affirmed after the judge's decision in the district court. I wanted to turn to Thomas to kind of give us a little bit of context as we think through these next steps in the case, to give a little bit of context about how this looks for the clients and what they've been dealing with in Bolivia, particularly as Beth kind of described the origins of the case. I appreciate what close relationships the attorneys maintain with the clients and organizers in this case. I think it's a really beautiful model of how lawyering can be in service of people's organizing on the ground and human rights. And I appreciate the long relationship you have with the clients working towards justice since the 2003 massacres and since the case filing in 2007. Thomas, I know you're actually visiting Bolivia recently. So I wondered, in particular, to commemorate the massacres. So I wondered, if you could speak a bit about this history of the case and how that's still resonant today.
2: Sure. You know, I think to kind of jump right into it, in Bolivia, certainly, I think this is seen as perhaps the most important case in the history of Bolivia. At least that's how it's described in Bolivia. And I think for a couple of reasons. I think one, I mean, historically in the United States, this is the first time a living ex-president has ever been tried in the United States, has had to face his or her accusers. So it's historic for those of us in the legal world. But in Bolivia, this case is so important because I think for a lot of people, it's not just a case against an individual who was in charge of these unfortunate killings. You know, Goni, whether it's fair or not, has become kind of the face of colonialism in Bolivia. You know, he's known as the gringo. His accent is shockingly worse than mine, which is, I don't know how that's seemingly possible, but you know, he's one of the richest, most powerful people in the history of the country. Him and his brother are allegedly, you know, some of the richest people in the last century. And so I think this case for a lot of folks in Bolivia is a really symbolic case. For a lot of folks, this was putting colonialism on trial. It was putting centuries of exploitation on trial. And for the families that we work with, these are some of the poorest people in what at the time was the poorest country in South America. And so how it's resonated in Bolivia is pretty special. When we started the case People explicitly said, you guys are crazy. Like, you can't take down Goni. He's intocable. He's untouchable. You know, this is a guy, like I said, with a whole lot of resources. And these are communities that, you know, are unfortunately have not, don't have the same resources. So people thought the families and all of us were crazy. But the family said, no, we're going to do this. And not just for, you know, their loved ones, people like Marlene, who passed away. But they were very clear. We have a responsibility to do something so this never happens again in Bolivia. And so it's been this really, honestly, special struggle. And I think we've been really, really lucky to be part of it. I'm glad you referenced kind of the model that we've been trying to implement, which is, you know, it's the families driving this. I think a lot of times in law, it can be very top down. You know, we have certain discourse, certain skills that allow us to kind of operate in this weird world of law that a lot of times family members, survivors don't have. But we made sure that they were on the front. They were making most of the decisions and anything else we were collaborating with them. So it's been this very collective struggle. And I think that's why we've been so successful, one, in the courtroom, but even in terms of maintaining a case for a decade and a half. As you mentioned, I just was recently in Bolivia celebrating with the families, remembering what took place 17 years ago. But it's a very important case to look at the context of Goni and really kind of send a message so that this never happens again.
0: Thank you so much for that. I think maybe to turn back to you, Beth, although I, of course, invite both of you to respond, I, I'm thinking as we talk about Goni, as a, also, of course, the former president, uh, that's the nickname used, as a figure, he seemed so unassailable. And as Beth mentioned, he fled to the United States and was immediately allowed to stay, whereas we know that journey is so often very precarious and uncertain usually for immigrants, particularly from the region of Latin America, although, of course, for immigrants from so many other places, uh, but in particular for immigrants who are escaping persecution and violence, where, you know, contrary to the fact that Goni was, in fact, responsible for having initiated persecution and violence. So we have that example, and then we have the fact that the jury verdict against him was overruled very soon after the verdict came out. In thinking about sort of Goni's kind of invulnerability to consequence and the impunity that's been shown for these massacres and the struggle of the clients, what do you think the recent victory at the Court of Appeals means both for Goni and for our clients?
1: As Thomas was saying, I think Goni is very much for our clients, for Bolivia, and and I would say as well to people in in Latin America and other places in the world, is a symbol of the white, powerful, wealthy, dominant class in so many parts of the world. And he went into court, he went into the trial with the self-confidence of someone who comes from that world. When he testified in front of the jury, the jury was largely people of color, largely working class, and he sat in front of them And he told, you know, his stories about how his mother had worked with Eleanor Roosevelt and really did not resonate with that jury. And then he told a story about how his wife was home pregnant in labor, giving birth, I think, to their first child. And he went out to buy her a car as a present. And instead, he bought her a mine. And and his wealth (laughs) comes from mining. I mean, he is so out of touch with the people of the United States who made up this jury, that he thought this story would resonate much less with the people of his home country. And we had similar testimony from his co-defendant, from the Minister of Defense, who denied that there are indigenous people in Bolivia. We're all Bolivians, he said. In the midst of the Black Lives Matter, (laughs) the All Lives Matter movement in the United States, he said to this jury of people of color, we're all Bolivians and he, not a clue. And he lived in the United States. He lives in Florida, he, he knows this. But the interesting, one of the interesting things was that our sense was that these stories did resonate with the judge, but not with the jury. And we won in front of the jury and we lost in front of the judge. And I think our clients saw this very much as a reflection of the reality and that the audience that mattered was the jury the people of the united states had spoken through this jury and had believed them and accept you know and, and ruled for them and they're used to being rejected overturned by the white elite and that's how they saw the judge how how they saw the the three judges on the appellate panel i don't know but the appellate panel with some distance was able to Read what had been before the jury and been be persuaded that it was sufficient to support our claim. So it, we really felt like it was writing that balance that the verdict of the jury was reinstated.
2: Yeah, and just to piggyback off what Beth's saying, you know, for folks in Bolivia, not just the families and not just kind of the social movements or folks without economic means in Bolivia, but you know, the jury verdict was the most important thing. And still, you know, at the end of this process. If it goes to the Supreme Court, wherever it ends up, the jury verdict is the most important thing because, in theory, that represents the voice of the American people. And the American people have spoken. It wasn't a surprise in some ways that the judge overturned the verdict. I think, you know, when you have a history of so much colonial exploitation in Bolivia, there's always this distrust of those in positions of power. So a lot of Bolivian people, it wasn't a shock, and though people were upset that it was overturned, at the end of the day, the American people have spoken and they've said that these two men are responsible for killing innocent Bolivians. And I think that you can't change that no matter how this case turns out, which is pretty special. And for the families, it's not about winning money. This, (laughs) This is about justice. This is about sending the message, you can never do this again. And I think in a lot of ways that that jury verdict sent that message. Hopefully it resonates, hopefully it's solidified. At this point with the appellate court decision, it certainly was solidified, but that's the most important message.
0: Thank you for that. And congratulations on so successfully communicating that story, you know, to really get to that place. As you pointed out, it's really due to the incredible long-term organizing efforts of these families and communities struggling for justice and recognition of historical injustices, which I think is certainly reflective, um, as you mentioned, in the U.S. I wondered if, Thomas, if you could contextualize a little bit for us what this is looking like right now, given different political developments that I think you've certainly seen firsthand, having been in Bolivia recently. Recently, While this case has proceeded, as you know very well, there have been great political upheavals in Bolivia, which includes a coup in 2019, a very recent election in late 2020, and, you know, many other developments. So I wondered if you could speak about that recent history and how this kind of implicates and informs the case.
2: Sure. You know, part of what I was saying about the appellate court decision, I think hopefully solidifying this is really important. This is not to say that the judge overturning our case two years ago really opened the door for massive violence, but I think it did send a message, at least in Bolivia, okay, maybe we can get away with this. And so i referenced that because last year there was a coup. Abel Morales, who had been in power for 13, 14 years, ran again, social movements were protesting, some people wanted him to stay, some didn't. We can spend hours talking about whether he should have rerun again or not. But what is clear is that Abel was removed from power illegally, The police, the military threatened him. Opposition leaders on television admitted to paying (laughs) these state forces to force him out of power. Right-wing groups burnt the houses of politicians involved with Hamas, kidnapped them, tortured them, threatened to rape their family members. I mean, it, it was brutal. And after Abel fled, as well as dozens of other officials with the government, an interim government took power that was not elected. So, this woman, Janine Añez, was selected by the Brazilian ambassador, the Catholic Church, and several opposition candidates. They basically named this woman president. She was not voted in power. She was relatively unknown, other than she had tweeted a bunch of racist things about indigenous people. That was kind of the only thing that people knew about her. And after she took power, you know, really the abuses we've seen in Bolivia over the last year have been almost unprecedented. Ironically, I would say the one example of a more violent time would be Goni. You know, There was a study done on on state forces killing civilians and the most violent month in the history of Bolivia since democracy was Black October, which is what we've been working on, the Goni case. And then the second most deadly month was this last November in 2019. And I was there for most of the last year documenting the abuses. In the first week alone, there were two massacres carried out by the new government, the interim government of Añez. Boy, it's been a rough year. Hundreds of people have been arrested for sedition, terrorism, tortured, thrown in jail. It's been a really, really dangerous time in Bolivia. But in mid-October, there were elections and the MAS party, Abel Morales' party, the movement towards socialism, won the elections with 55% of the vote. It was kind of this resounding victory. I would say less for the MAS. Actually, I think it was this resounding rejection of authoritarianism, of violence, of racism, I think it frankly had less to do with the candidate. Any candidate, I think, could have won. I think it was the people once again rising up really democratically, nonviolently in response to a very, very violent year. It's tough. I think this was a hard year for the families because I think a lot of us thought we sent the message to leaders that you cannot get away with this behavior anymore. Certainly, I would say that at least some of the family members believe that the decision to overturn the jury verdict really created a space where government thought maybe we can get away with this. And that's why I think that this appeal and our recent win is so important because it really does solidify this message that if you kill people, you will be held accountable. And I can say that, you know, being there in Bolivia over the last year and, you know, just recently for the elections and post elections, I've talked to government officials who said the message is sent. We need to do something about it. So they've already begun processes against the ministers that were involved in the killings. Several generals, the ex-president, they all have processes that have started. And I think a lot, at least in part, this trial that the families in 2003 brought really served as a centerpiece or as an example for holding people accountable. And I think many people in Bolivia would say that without the Goni case, they wouldn't be moving as quickly for justice in Bolivia, which is special.
0: That's really amazing to hear. And I also want to invite Beth, if you have any thoughts on this, just what it means to bring a case that becomes sort of an example to look to that can create these kind of shifts. I wondered if you wanted to share, you know, how your experience of having seen what it's meant to the clients and having to sort of pave the way in, in you know, getting justice.
1: As Thomas talked about this, uh, and, and as you talked about it, Representing a movement in, in the sense of listening to them, I mean, being their US lawyers, but taking guidance, following them, learning from them. I've worked on, uh, on, on many human rights cases, and you know, some of them were representing incredibly brave, cor- courageous individuals who are, in, in, you know, in some ways, ahead of the movement that they come from and somewhat isolated. This case was special in terms of the breadth of the movement that we were able to work with. I mean, when we talk about you know, the plaintiffs and the families, when Thomas talks about it, it's the eight families who were actually our plaintiffs, and then it's also a whole organization of people behind them who were you know, other family members of other people who were killed in the violence. And they're all part of it, and they're all part of decision-making. <laughs> You know, were, we learned a lot from them. I learned a lot from them over the years and, and you know, incredibly moved and impressed by their their courage and their ability to, their willingness to stick with it. I mean, and you know, another story that I can't tell often enough is how they kept us going and lifted our spirits when we were disappointed right? because they, they know the struggle is long and hard and they don't expect any different, but they don't give up because of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think really lawyers could learn a lot from folks in Bolivia. I mean, we certainly have, but just again, you know, I mean, we formally filed in 2007, started working on it before that. I mean, it's been a decade and a half and boy, it's tiring and boy, it's difficult for families. I mean, if you, if you think about the fact that there is no closure for them, you know, they have to keep their wounds open every single day to keep this struggle moving forward. They have to deal with, you know, right wing pro, you know, like these kind of neo-fascists who, who bombard them with the worst things you could ever hear about their family members being terrorists or narco traffickers or Castro Chavistas. You have to sit there in depositions and just get berated <laughs> at times, you know. This is not a fun process. But I think, you know, because they've been at the forefront, they've been so involved. We haven't lost steam in 15 years. You know, to me, it's amazing that 15 years later, I had less wrinkles then, now I got some gray hairs. I mean, it's been so much time working on this and they're just as energized as ever, despite it being such a horrific, I mean, it's not fun to be in a legal process, but I think because they've been in the forefront, they've been steering the ship. I think they feel empowered. I think they feel excited. And so the movement is still blasting forward and they're so smart and so creative and they understand that this is just a piece of a bigger struggle. And little things, you know, we look to them for guidance, and and of course we suggest people that we think would be good witnesses or not, but really at the end of the day, they make decisions. They make the decision. They make decisions on what's gonna be the final story. Maybe this witness is not as helpful for the case, but it completes the story, and we have a responsibility to tell the complete story. They get how it fits into the struggle in Bolivia, and they understand that a lot of times you use non-legal means, or sometimes even illegal means. (laughs) which is, you know, in the trial responsibilities, which was a trial against the ministers and generals involved in Goni's cabinet, uh, involved in the killings in 2003, that was not moving forward. So the families decided, all right, we're going to occupy Congress. And so they occupied Congress, which was the thing that really sparked this trial. Things were moving so slowly. And it was an embarrassment that these folks who suffered so much had to take over Congress to make this happen. You know, so I think they're very smart, they're very creative, and they've made the decisions that have made, really, all this stuff happen, and we've just been lucky to piggyback and and learn from them.
0: I think it's really helpful to bring in all that and to recognize kind of this longer struggle. I would imagine, you know, it comes from the fact that we're talking about this in terms of 15-20 years, but in fact, I imagine that they're seeing this as a kind of 500 plus year struggle of indigenous resistance that I'm sure is resonant beyond the borders of, you know, what is now Bolivia, certainly is something that's resonant within the borders of what is now the United States as we see in so many struggles against colonialism and empire as you mentioned before Beth. We're talking about a population that is largely poor indigenous aymara people and they're struggling against this wealthy white established culture and against the military power that they wield and I wonder if you could like reflect a little bit on this sort of like historical justice that fits into the shorter timeline of this case the shorter history of this case but kind of how it fits into this longer struggle against colonialism
1: I think you said it well. In Bolivia, because the indigenous population is such a large majority, you see it. You see it in front of you all the time. You see the white wealth, you see the indigenous poverty, but you also see the indigenous population, particularly under the government that was in power until a year ago, the MAS government. You see tremendous change in indigenous political power underway in Bolivia. In this case, Coming in these recent years has been part of a movement in Bolivia to increase the I mean, the democratic power of the people who are a large majority of the country, and and this, you could see a, a sense in which they're take they've been struggling to take their country back and and having some remarkable success at it.
2: Yeah, really, you know, Black October. Sorry for being a history nerd in Bolivia, but I'm going to go back to kind of the big indigenous leader, Tupac Qatari, who kind of led the resistance against the Spanish. And allegedly, when he was killed, he was drawn and quartered. And his last words were, I will return his millions. And, you know, folks in Bolivia say in Black to October, he returned his millions because people went out in the streets, they protested, and they kicked out a president who was part of this line of colonialist leaders that had exploited the people, the resources of the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so Black October was a special moment. I remember this priest we had interviewed told us people were embarrassed to be from El Alto, which is the city outside La Paz. It is a very much working class indigenous city. And for years it was kind of embarrassing. It was almost a shanty town. After Black October, people said, I'm I'm Alteno. They wore it with pride. You know, it was this turning point where it was like no, we're gonna take control for the first time. And, and Black October is what opened the door for Abel Morales to win. And you know, I don't think Abel Morales is the symbol of change, but I think he's a reflection of what the social movements and what indigenous folks wanted. And opened the door for the first indigenous president. Opened the door for this case, this historic case where they took on this <laughs> untouchable leader. And so, I, you know, again, we are so lucky to get to tag along to learn from them in this special process. And this was this moment. This, this was kind of the moment, the shift away from colonial exploitation. That's not to say that everything's perfect in Bolivia now, but it really just took a completely different course. And, you know, in some ways, you know, Tupac Atari did return his millions during Black October, and Bolivia's different for it now.
0: It's really amazing to hear that. I think as you pointed out, so many lessons for us. Uh, you know, I have certainly, as someone living in the What is now United States? I think to hear the possibility of challenging impunity and challenging powerful government figures, even a former president, it's something. Certainly, we have many lessons to learn from that, and to learn about the long struggle of challenging colonialism. So it's just incredible to see winning happening. (laughs) I wonder if you all had any, you know, closing thoughts as kind of we come to the end of the discussion. Messages that maybe the the organizers and clients want to share you know, with, with folks uh, who, like me, are located in the U.S. or uh, anyone kind of interested in furthering these struggles in support of, you know, social movements challenging these larger forces.
1: It's clear from what we've been talking about that I often talk about the limits using law as a tool of social change. It's a cumbersome tool, and many struggles don't fit into it, and judges throw out your verdicts, and and, and you can't get visas and get your testimony in and really tell your story and you don't have the money. And, but sometimes it works and it can serve many purposes and it serves many purposes sometimes when it's losing. Thomas has talked about recognizing how hard it is and how long it takes. And I also think it's important to recognize all the multiple different ways in which it can have an impact.
2: Yeah, I mean, not to really steal what you're saying, but I was going to say the same thing, mm-hmm. Beth, that it's just, there are severe limitations in the law in terms of bringing social change, I think. But I think there are these moments and it can be used. And I think this is one of those cases where it can serve as an example. Last year, I was speaking to some folks that are part of the Tamil community, and they said, you know, their family members were tortured and killed and disappeared. The now president, but then previously was the minister of defense, they thought, you know, this guy will never get justice. And then they heard about the Goni case in some chat room and they started digging into it. And then they launched a case because they thought, boy, if campesinos from, you know, the highlands of Bolivia can take on a president, so can we, you know what I mean? And I think it's exciting to know that, you know, like not to over, I I don't want to over romanticize the story or like simplify it, this like David versus Goliath story, but it is pretty special what they've done. And it's such an important example because, Winning isn't necessarily winning a case. I mean, this process, if the jury said, no, you lose, you know, I think we still won. I think the message was sent. I think people know what happened in Bolivia. Seeing the way in which it's empowered, not just our clients or the, the families we work with, but Bolivian society has been special. Folks that never wanted to be leaders are now leaders. I never... Say the families are victims because I don't think they are victims. I think that they are not to be too cheesy, but heroes in the way that they've taken on this role. And you see it in the way they speak. You see folks that, you know, in the beginning of this process were devastated, and now they speak before protests of like 8,000 people with such, I, I don't even know how to explain it, like, you know, such a spirit that's so exciting. And, and seeing them kind of transform into these leaders and what it's done in their communities. And so I think there are victories all along the way in these processes. Whether you win in the end or not, I think if you come into this as a collective struggle, there are moments that you can win, you can empower the communities, you can give them agency, and you can make a difference whether a judge or jury says you are liable or not. Just to reemphasize it, boy, we're lucky to get a tag along with them.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much to both of you. It's been so incredible to be able to hear your reflections firsthand given the whole history of this case and being able to be in close proximity and close relationship to the clients and other folks in Bolivia. Craig, congratulations on seeing this victory through in the long haul. A victory not just for you, but obviously for the clients as you spoke of, and for uh, so many others in Bolivia trying to challenge these larger forces. So I know we're all looking forward to whatever may come next and eager to learn more from long term social movements organizing together. And so thank you so much for your time today, it's so appreciated.